The series we begin today is a three-part series from the book of Titus. It's called Walk It Out. You can turn to Titus in your Bible. All the T's are together in your Bible. You've got 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Titus is about life in the local church. And the part of the Bible that most directly relates to the local church are Paul's letters. He, he wrote 13, possibly 14. Hebrews is up for grabs. And, and those letters that he wrote became part of the New Testament. When the letter to Titus was penned, the Christian church was still in its infancy. Paul's plan as the first church planter was for each town to have a church, a congregation, and a pastor. The ability to teach was a distinguishing quality, characteristic of a, of a pastor, but another indispensable quality was knowledge of sound doctrine and the ability to refute those who contradicted sound doctrine. In the New Testament, Terms like pastor, overseer, elder are often used interchangeably. At some point in Paul's travels, he established churches on the island of Crete. Titus remained on the island when Paul left, and his job was to bring order and to oversee the new congregations located there. That's the title of part one in our series. It's called Order in the Church. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us this morning and throughout this series that we would grasp what it is that you have for us today in the book of Titus, in the letter that Paul penned to the young pastor Titus. Pray, Lord, you'd help us to glean truth from this today. I pray for an anointing. Lord, I pray that that uh, the, the things that I say wouldn't be from, from my heart or from my passion, but it would be from the very throne of God, that you would speak to us through your word today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus ha had his challenges there in Crete. According to Titus 1.12, uh, it described the Cretans as liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. They were known throughout the ancient world for their immorality. In fact, the term Cretan itself was a derogatory term. It's into this setting that Titus was called to pastor. Unlike Timothy, who was half Jewish, Titus was Greek, born of two Gentile parents, non-Jews. In Galatians 2, the disciples acknowledged that Titus, and thus all Gentiles, did not need to be circumcised to be accepted as followers of Christ and members of the New Testament church. Now, it's hard for us, 2019, to grasp the significance of this, but this is a really big deal. The book of Ephesians and other New Testament passages say the two became one. This speaks of, of both Jew and Gentile being accepted into the Christian church as part of the same body. 
This is what is referenced in, in some of Paul's writings as the mystery. Whenever you see that word, Paul says, the mystery of the church. This is what he's referring to. This is how unimaginable this was to the ancient world. This is how incomprehensible this was, especially to the Jews. Paul's letter to Titus was one of three pastoral letters. The other two were written to Timothy. All three are letters from the aging apostle toward the end of his life, written out of a concern for his successors in ministry. The letters concern the issues thought to be crucial for younger pastors to understand. Things like church organization and church discipline, dealing with rebellious members and false teachers, and the importance of maintaining doctrinal purity. Today we begin a three-part look at, at one of those pastoral epistles, the letter to Titus. Titus is the 56th book of the Bible. It contains three chapters, 46 verses, 921 words, all in the KJV, of course. Part two in the series next week will be a look at generations in the church. Part three will examine the church in the world. That's where we're heading now on to chapter 1, beginning in verses one, and three, 1 through 3 of chapter 1 of Titus, it says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but has in due times manifested his word through preaching which is committed unto me, Paul says, according to the commandment of God our Savior. Early in the Gospels, the Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've been talking about the epistles of Paul. But early in the Gospels, Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verses like Mark 1.15 and, and Matthew 4.17 say, it's Jesus talking, he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's, it's here. It's within reach. It's here for the taking. Tragically, the Jews would reject Jesus as Messiah. And the opportunity, at least for a time, would be lost. In Romans 11, Israel is compared to the natural branches of an olive tree. The natural branches, Israel, were cut off because of their rejection of Jesus. And the branches of a wild olive tree, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, that's you and me mostly, were grafted in according to verse 17 of Romans 11. Because of the failure of Israel to recognize Jesus as Messiah, because of the failure of Israel to recognize Jesus as Messiah, the Gentiles would become the vessels called upon to bring the gospel to the world. And that's where we find ourselves. 
The day of Pentecost came 50 days after the resurrection. It was the birth of the church. It was, it was the dawn of a new era. It would begin a parenthetical period as God worked in the hardened hearts of the Jewish people who had somehow missed the long-awaited coming of the Messiah. This parenthetical period has become known as the church age. The church would become the ambassador of, of Christ. Peter would be the apostle to the Jews. Paul would be the apostle to the Gentiles. And the chosen method for reaching people would be the preaching of the word. And with all that has changed over 20 plus centuries, this has never changed. Even with all the technological advances of recent decades, the word of God preached is still the anointed and empowered method of glorifying God, equipping the saints, and reaching the lost. Amazing. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18, it says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Let me, let me read that again. I think it resonates as true, doesn't it? For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that is the wisdom of God. The world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block. Under the Greeks foolishness. But of them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God. The wisdom of God. Simple men preach a simple gospel. The Spirit moves. Hearts are changed, people are impacted, and God receives the glory. Paul says in verse 3 of Titus chapter 1, But God has in due times manifested his word through preaching. Here in the church age, God works through the body of Christ, the local church, to reach lost people. Some critical of the church today say, if Paul were around today, he wouldn't even recognize the church. Would he even recognize the church? I think the answer is yes, he would. In fact, it's exactly what he envisioned. It's exactly what he dreamt about. And so in his pastoral letters, he wrote about things like church structure. Verse 4 of Titus chapter 1 and following. It says, To Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause I left you in Crete. Paul left Titus in Crete. That you should set 
in order the things that are wanting. And ordain elders or pastors in every city as I have appointed you. If any be blameless, now here come the, the qualifications. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. I just like saying filthy lucre. <laughs> but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Set the church in order, Paul said. Doesn't just happen, you know. The church is, is, is both an organism and an organization. There, there has to be a system. Without a system, the church would, would quickly deteriorate into chaos. There's been many that have tried without a system. Hey, we'll just, we'll just let the Spirit lead. Did you know that God is big on systems? Did you know that God likes systems? Have you ever thought about that? He created systems, the solar system. It's not just willy-nilly up there. That's right, willy-nilly. <laughs> The ecosystem, the nervous system, the circulatory system. God's big on systems. Well, here, here's our system. This is the flow chart, if you will. Some people love this stuff. Some people are bored by it instantly. Uh, it's on the back of your notes as well. You have sermon notes in your, in your program. If you flip that over, this is there for your uh, entertainment purposes. Uh, but I think it, I, I find it semi-fascinating. We go, we go over this in a little bit of detail during the membership meeting. If you've never taken a membership class, you'd be part of that and we could talk about this. Uh, but there's, there's a system. I believe the strength of the assemblies of God is first in its fundamental belief in the authority and inspiration of Holy Scripture. The soundness of our doctrine is rooted in the fact that we preach, teach, and live the Bible. Now another aspect of our uniqueness in the assemblies of God is the autonomy of our churches. Now, when we use the word autonomous, it means that we are affiliated with, but not dictated to, or orchestrated to by the National Office of the Assemblies of God in Springfield, Missouri, or the District Office in Wapaka, Wisconsin. As a local church, I think this is important for, for you to know, and I think this is important for you to hear. As a local church, we hire our own pastor and staff. We determine our own ministries. Not every Assemblies of God is a mercy fund. That's something that we deem important but we don't have to have a mercy fund we buy and sell our own properties at the will and discretion of the membership 
We preach what we believe God is leading us to preach on. No one told me to preach a series on Titus. I felt like God was leading me to, to do that. The district office is there to help, equip us, advise us as needed. They are a great asset, but they do not run our church. The pastor is hired to lead the church. The pastor hires the ministry positions. And he, along with the board, the staff, and other ministry leaders, determine the direction of the church. And to me, that makes sense. Thankfully, I'm blessed with good people around me. We have an amazing staff. I think of in the past, we had Sean and Kareen, years gone by. They were amazing. The crew that I have now is, is amazing. As they always say, I have no one to blame but myself. I hired them. That's what they tell me in troubled times. But I've been blessed. The office crew, past and present, have, have been amazing uh, assets. I'm blessed with people who love Jesus, love the church, and work hard to see it become all that, that it can be. And every board that I've had the privilege of working with in my 10 years as senior pastor, a new board every year, not, not the entire board, but the, there's changes on the board every year, and every year of those 10 years, I have had nothing but support and help from the boards here at, at Central Assembly. Our structure is good. The church has been set in order, as it says in Titus 1.5, and we are healthy to God be the glory. We should appreciate our health. We should appreciate our health. It's not a given. Many churches are unhealthy. The letter to Titus, down in chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, deals with some of this. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, Especially, especially they of the circumcision. Now that's a reference to the Jewish law keepers, also known as the Judaizers, whose mouths must be stopped, verse 11 says, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. The witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Verse 15, unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient unto every good work reprobate. And while we enjoy the benefits of good health, it's wise for us to look at four causes of unrest or division within the church. Number one, so this is four causes of unrest or division within the church. This is certainly not an exhaustive list. It's four Four causes of unrest or division in the church. Number one, the church cannot or will not adapt to change. 
Churches often keep using old methodologies under the false premise that they are tried and true and therefore better. They hold on to traditions as though they were scripture. The dying church has a mantra. This is the way we've always done it. Growing churches, churches that are reaching people for Jesus, realize there's a tendency for all of us to want the church to look like it did when I got saved. Hey, I could lead a great church for 60-year-olds. I could. I would know exactly what to do. I would know exactly what songs to sing. I would know exactly what messages to preach. It would be right in my wheelhouse. <laughs> but I don't want just 60-year-olds at church. Do you? So we hire Matt with the funny hair. And Samuel with all the energy, and now Amanda, they, they broaden our perspective, and they help us reach a wider demographic. Our outreach strategies and methods of ministry cannot be the same today as they were 40 years ago. It doesn't mean that what we did then was bad or wrong. It just has to change. And it does not mean, now, now hear me, church, it does not mean we compromise the gospel. Amen. This, in fact, is the mistake much of the modern church is making. Many churches and even entire denominations are declining in attendance. It's here many make the fatal mistake of trying to broaden their appeal by preaching what they think people want to hear, and eventually doctrine erodes and distinctives are lost. It's, a, it's one of the modern tragedies of our time. Well, let me, let me make this pledge to you today. As long as I'm in this pulpit, we will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. As, lo as long as I'm here, the Bible will be our rule of faith and conduct. As long as I'm in this pulpit, I'll hold fast to the word of God. I'm willing to change a lot of things, but when it comes to the Word of God, I'm unwilling to make a change. When it comes to the Word of God, I'm more than willing to be a religious dinosaur. I will not compromise the truth of Scripture. I will not surrender the Word of God in favor of a broader appeal to the world. I refuse to surrender the Word of God in an effort to avoid offense. As long as I have any influence, as long as I'm the pastor here, we will be a church rooted and grounded in the Word of God. The Bible will be our foundation. It will be what we preach. It'll be what we teach. And it'll be what we do. And it will be who we are. As your pastor, rest assured, I will hang on to this book until the day I'm done. I will preach the Word of God until the last breath escapes my lungs. If they want me to discard the Word of God, if they want me to depart from the teachings of Scripture, if anyone wants me to forego the Word of God, they'll have to come up onto this platform and pry it out of my cold, dead hands. Yeah. 
Now get this, not only is compromising the gospel wrong, it's unsuccessful in growing the church. The liberal denominations, the movements that are drifting away from the word of God are dying. It's the most conservative denominations that are showing growth. Over the last decade, the Assemblies of God in the United States, which, of which we are a part, have grown by 12% to 3.2 million adherents. Worldwide, there are 69 million adherents and more than 370,000 Assembly of God churches. God will always honor the preaching of the Word. So from time to time, we change the packaging, but we never compromise the gospel. But we must have the ability to adapt to change. If we don't, we die. The inability or the unwillingness to adapt to change is one cause of division or unrest in the church. Another cause of unrest or division is when, number two, the board or the congregation does not want the pastor to lead. Some churches struggle because they haven't decided who's in charge. And when there are factions fighting for control, the, the results are inevitably disastrous. We de what happens is we degenerate into the world of politics. In fact, it's worse than politics, and here's why. If, if the president, whether it's the Donald, or Barack Obama, if the president gets a 51% approval rating, he's riding high. He's posting that on Facebook or Twitter. 51% approval rating. Yes. But if, if I have a 51% approval rating as your pastor, we have a church split. The unconscious result is many pastors drift to people-pleasing. And that's a slow death. We call and hire our pastor to lead. Let him lead. Doesn't mean he's infallible or even that he knows more than anybody else. We just need someone to lead. We're looking at causes of unrest in the local church. Number one is the church will not adapt to change. Number two, the board or the congregation does not allow the pastor to lead. And third, division and unrest are likely if the pastor has influential and vocal critics. Do you know who Statler and Waldorf are? They're the two disgruntled old men on the Muppet Show. <laughs> named after, they're named after two New York hotels, by the way. Do you know that? Waldorf and Statler. And they would heckle the cast of The Muppet Show from their balcony seats. I love those guys. But in the church, it isn't quite so funny. A pastor can lose credibility as people talk behind his back and take pot shots from the balcony. Over time, confidence in the pastor is eroded. People begin to look at him differently. Factions begin to form. And from that moment on, everything that is said or done is received from a tainted perspective. 
At this point, the ministry of the church is greatly compromised, and you are reduced to putting out fires and treading water. Another source of unrest, number four, is the church has an inward focus. Another death knell for a church is when they fail to see beyond these four walls. It's a sad reality that some people are perfectly content where they are and don't want anything to upset the proverbial apple cart. Comfort has become more important than mission. Change is something to be avoided. We have an apple cart and by gully, no one is going to upset it. Don't sit in my seat and don't tamper with my ministry. People have built up kingdoms within the kingdom and will fight to the death to hold on to what they have come to see as theirs. The mission always has to be bigger than the individual. Let me say that again, church. The mission always has to be bigger than the individual. There's no place for a kingdom within the kingdom. We're not owners, we're stewards. The work of the Lord must come first. We need to remember why we're here. We exist really for three reasons. To glorify God, to equip the saints, and to reach the lost. Anything beyond that is outside of our purview. We're not a civic center. We're not a wedding chapel. We have a very short purpose statement. It describes what we do and why we do it. We have it painted on the wall back in the, in the foyer, in the lobby. We print it on most of our documents, sharing our story to connect others with God's story. That's why we're here. That's what we do. I like that because it's, it's, it's simple. It's not overly complicated. It's memorable. It's just one sentence. But most importantly, I like it because no matter who you are, no matter how long you've been here, no matter if you got saved a week ago or 30 years ago, it applies to you. The blind man that Jesus healed, remember that story? They kept trying to ask him, what happened? Tell us what happened. Tell us about this Jesus. He says, I don't know. I once was blind, and now I see. Simple story. That was his story. And now it was his job to share his story, to connect others with God's story. He had just gotten saved, but he had a story. I think our health as a church can be attributed to the fact that we're pretty real around here. We're just beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We're just looking for opportunities to share our story. And when you have that mindset, division and unrest are, are not usually a problem. You already understand it's not about you. That describes how you guys responded last week on Easter. My heart was moved as I 
saw all the cars parked over at Heritage Park, all the people that walked over in the rain to save spots for guests. For everybody who's heeded my incessant longing for you to, to move up and to move in, to move over. Last week at Easter, we had this whole front row filled with our college students, college-age students, because they wanted to help. They wanted to make room. They wanted to free up 11 more seats for people that might come on Easter. They get it. You get it. It's not about you. It's what Christians do. It's exactly what Jesus did. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. It's how we walk out our calling and our purpose as a church. It's what gives us meaning beyond the moment. It's what defines our life and gives us direction. It's not about us. It's about Him. And it's about them. That's the right order in the church. Paul told Titus, order the church. God, the lost, and us. Set the church in order, Paul said to Titus. And then begin to walk it out. Lord, I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for the health that we've experienced as an organization and an organism. And Lord, I really believe that comes from the fact that that we've grasped the concept that it's not about us. There will be things that, that we disagree with, things that we're maybe uncomfortable with, things that we wish were different, but it's not about us. Lord, I thank you for the selfless mindset of the folks that make up Central Assembly. It was manifested, it manifested itself on Resurrection Sunday as people made sacrifices for those would come to church. Lord, I pray for the one that's here today who perhaps doesn't know what it means to love you and to serve you. Maybe they've gone to church before. They've thought of themselves as a good person. So I must be saved. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their heart today. You'd remind them that salvation doesn't come from works comes by faith. So we put our faith in the Savior, the one that the Jews missed 2,000 years ago. And they were cut off. And the church was grafted in. Jesus. We put our faith in Him. He died for my sins. My sins can be washed away. I can be cleansed from all unrighteousness, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus did on my behalf. And so I receive that by faith. And now I begin to walk it out. I turn from my sin, and I begin to live for him.
no one ever loved me like Jesus loved me. And I can trust him. I pray for the one that's realizing that today. I pray that you would speak to their heart, that they would give their life to you, they would surrender their life to you, that they might become all that you've called them to be as part of the church. In Jesus' name. Thank you so much for joining us today, family, and I'm so thankful to be a part of a body that worships God the way that we, that we do together. We're going to go into one more song in a little bit, but...